0: So we'll be continuing our series uh, on the Psalms today. We're talking uh, specifically about liturgy. We began the series last week with this quote, and I kind of want to frame what we're talking about again with this. It says, the Psalms have been a primary vehicle for worship. For two millennia, this collection of 150 individual Psalms has helped to shape the public and private worship of Jews and Christians. I'm not aware of any other body of religious poetry that has been so influential for so long a period of time and for such a variety of religious communities. That's William Holliday in a book called The Psalms Through 3,000 Years. The Psalms truly do shape who we are. The Psalms have played a role in A lot of us are upbringing, the fact that we've been in church and we've been hearing these psalms read or sung or prayed for perhaps our entire life. Others of you come into this building from a different perspective where this is kind of new to you. Uh, We're going to be spending some time with the psalms to see why it's so true that these psalms shape who we are and how they go about doing that. In particular, last week we looked at the movement that takes place in the book of, of psalms. You see this movement demonstrated in the different types of Psalms, the praise Psalms, which demonstrate how good God is, the characteristics of of his very being, his deeds that he has um, put into motion on behalf of his people Israel through the Exodus and through conquest and through those different things. We've seen how that praise kind of is the foundational piece of who Israel is, but that moves at times into lament. That's kind of what we looked at last week where we're in those moments of Doubt, despair, trial, suffering, persecution, failed a test, don't know if you fit in the major you're in in your life, boyfriend breaks up with you, girlfriend's cheating on you, um, parents get divorced, like any sort of those issues that can kind of make us wonder and question where God is in our lives. The psalmists uh, weren't beyond that and they prayed big psalms as well saying things like, where are you? The promises that you said were true for us, they don't seem to be in action right now in our life, so do something about it. And the way that they prayed those, those psalms were, were deep and rich and emotional and honest and raw, very dissimilar from the prayers that we oftentimes pray not to just put us all into that box, but a a good number of us, I'm guessing, our prayers, if we pray at all, are shallow and they're self-serving and they're a glorified wish list of things that that we would like to happen. This job, uh, that relationship, this bill. We don't really get into the deep deep realities of who we are as people. Oftentimes because we don't want to voice those things to ourselves, let alone to, to God. Within the Psalms, though, they move beyond that as well into this moment of thanksgiving where in the midst of protest and plea, God answers the prayers of his people. And in thanksgiving, the psalmists show up to say, thank you, God, for what you've done. I was in the pit. I was this close to death. Some people talk about being in Sheol, which in the ancient Near Eastern mindset was like, you were dead, and not only were you dead, you had gone below the, the crust of the earth and you had been sitting there just, in your deadness. But God has brought you up out of that. Whatever that deadness looked like, whether it was sickness or potential military defeat or enemies all around you, there's movement within the Psalms from praise to lament to thanks. You could frame it this way, where there's movement in the Psalm from the good to the bad to potentially to the better. And this is cyclical. It just keeps going on and on and on and on. For some people you're in the midst of the good. And maybe that's where some of you are right now, but it might be the case that within the next few days or weeks or months or years, you might step into the bad where you have to really look at yourself in the mirror, figure out what this faith is and see if, see if it's real. For many of us, we just stay in that comfortable middle where we say, "Like, yeah, I follow Jesus. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, everything's okay." But in, until the rubber really meets the road, we don't know how true that is. Some of us have been there, and you've moved beyond that, where God has actually answered a prayer for you, and you've moved on to thank Him for for the ways He's enacted that. One scholar refers to this movement or this progression as a movement from orientation, that being those foundational things that you hang your whole theology on, your whole life hangs on what you believe here, but you move into a time of disorientation when the things that you believe don't match up with real life experience. The promises that you hear God saying don't seem to echo the life that you lived or that you are living. But some of us have moved beyond that into this time of reorientation where we begin to make sense of everything that has just happened. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you look back and you say, gosh, that trial, that hardship, that moment of suffering truly shaped and defined who I am right now as a person. You've completely reoriented your mind into who God is. And for some of us, that's the, that's a hard place to be because God's not the person that you were taught in Sunday school. God's not the person that you think he is from the Bible. God's not that, but he's something different for some of us. That's, even better for some of us, that's, that's life altering and potentially even shattering. But some people move on to pick the pieces up and understand things in a, in a very different way. So we see this movement throughout the Psalms, a movement from praise potentially to protest where your prayers are not just, dear God, thank you for this food. It looks so delectable. Amen. Like, it's not that, it's, what are you doing? Where are you? My life's falling apart. People hate me. I got enemies all around me. They're looking to punch me in the face, metaphorically speaking. Why don't you do something about that? Amen? <laughs> you know, like your prayers move from those shallow sorts of things into this moment of protest, perhaps even into plea for a lot of you this is this is where you 've been for a long time. This is not really where I hang out, like my prayer life, just to be honest with you, and this is going to make me the bad pastor and i 'll wear that title for a moment. My diligence in prayer is not what I hope it it is or wish that it could be or it 's just not it 's rare for me to find this thing that i 'm consistently begging God to do, even on behalf of other people for some of that that 's because my life has been one that 's Typified by me being in the middle of things are okay. I say I love Jesus. I haven't really been tested there and I'm just kind of hanging out and I'm, I'm okay. Like I've talked about a few times in class here recently, the fact that I'm a 32 year old man, almost forgot how old I was there. Whew, getting up there. 32 year old guy with all four of my grandparents still alive. Like for, for, for me and my family, like our side of the family, there hasn't been those too many moments of the funeral service that completely rips you apart. There hasn't been many of those moments that just kind of gut check time where you figure out what your relationship with Jesus actually looks like when you're face to face with difficulty and distress where you're on your knees praying consistently over and over and over and over and over for God to move, for God to heal, for God to restore, for God to do something. I think even for some of us, perhaps we're in that moment, whether it's a health issue, a financial issue, a relationship issue, but our prayers just kind of potentially, and this is definitely not the case for everyone, they kind of fall away where where your moment of suffering becomes your comfortable zone. It's just what it is, what it is. That's how you exist, that's how you operate, and you forget that moment of plea. But throughout the Psalms, we see this praise and protest and plea, which eventually leads to trust. The lament Psalms, all of them but one, go from God do something, God show up, God fix this problem, God destroy the enemies, God do these things into yet I will trust you. Whatever it is that you say you're going to do, I'm going to stand here. I'm going to, I'm going to trust that you're going to do something. It wasn't just a may your will be done. It was a, I'm going to be confident that the things I just prayed, yeah, you're actually going to do them. So I'm just going to live as though that had already happened. They move into this moment of trust. The one that doesn't Psalm 88, which is beautiful and how that it, it ends with that last line, darkness was my closest friend, period, end scene, amen. Dear God, thanks for this day, darkness is my closest friend, amen, done. Like there's no hope there, there's no trust there, there's no, not much of anything, which makes that Psalm pretty awesome. But we're moving from praise to protest, to plead, to trust, ultimately to thanks. If God has answered the petition of his people, we move into that moment of thanks and then ultimately obedience, where we begin to live out the things that God wants us to do or be or whatever. All of this stuff, all of these life moments and prayers and songs, they shape who we are as people, and there's movement in the Psalms where we see that taking place, but it's not just movement around the rosy here, pocket full of posy, you know, it's a, it's like a a spiral almost where every time you make a lap around there and you come out of a moment of trial and difficulty, you're a different person. Sometimes you see that in a very clear way when you see folks come back from overseas being with the military and they come back and they're a different person. You see folks coming out from a a traumatic experience whether it's relationship or a health issue or whatever and they come back and they're a different person. And I think that's true for us too, in our relationship with Jesus, or at least it should be where these moments in our lives should be shaping who we are. And perhaps that's not like necessarily a downward spiral, but it's a spiral where we keep making laps and we keep becoming in a sense, different people. Stop there for one second. Are you a different person today than you were a year or two years or three years ago? I know you are because you've you've gotten older, you've gotten more mature, hopefully. You've gotten more gray hairs in your beard. Maybe that only fits me. Beyond that, though, like in your relationship with Jesus, have you have you become a different person, or have you become something that's different? Like we pray every week, let us be conformed into the image of Jesus. But how true of that of us is is that? Like, are we becoming more like Him? Or do we just keep doing the same old stuff? Do we keep ignoring our neighbors? Do we keep ignoring our problems? Do we keep not praying? Do we keep not caring about folks? Like what does this look like for us in our life? Tonight, I want to look at this one section here, the praise or the good or the Psalms of orientation. We'll we'll hang out here for three weeks. And today I want to talk about a couple of different things here. And we'll do that by, by setting it out this way. One of my favorite Bible scholar says this, the Psalms of orientation were created, transmitted, valued, and relied upon by a community of faithful people. To these people, their faith was both important and satisfying. A beginning theological point for the Psalms are those Psalms that express a confident, serene settlement of faith issues. Some things are settled beyond doubt so that one does not live and believe in the midst of overwhelming anxiety. A lot of us in the room today, that's not where we're at. We doubt everything because we have been created to be folks that are highly skeptical, highly questioning, highly thoughtful people where you can be riding in the car. I told my students this, this last week. And again, I'll wear the badge of the bad pastor for a moment. Let's rephrase that. Maybe not bad pastor, but honest pastor. Okay. I'm riding in the car and it just hits me in the face. Like, is this real? Not like I'm in the matrix or something. I mean, like is, is God real? Did his son really die for me and then resurrect from the dead? Is he really up there reigning and ruling somewhere? And we're just kind of we're caught in like that existential moment of. That's how I define it. I mean, it's scholarly, I know, but hopefully you can stay with me. It's like that. You no, know, and a lot of us, we, a lot of us don't do much with that, but. In these Psalms, there's some things that are settled and beyond doubt. I've at least come to the point in my life where I say very resolutely, like, there's no way that I cannot continue to believe that Christ is risen. There's no way that I cannot continue to orient my life around that single, solitary truth. A lot of the other stuff, though, in the Bible, like I grew up in a very conservative home and over the past, I'd say eight to 10 years, like I've just been having these moments of, gosh, what do I believe about this? What does this scripture say in light of this? Like all these different moments of what is it that I'm really believing? So doubt is a very real part of my life, but there's certain tenets of the faith where it's like you hold on to them and you might have those moments of, is this all real? But then you just smile and say, yeah, it is. Those are like the settled things so that we don't live and in, in, believe in the midst of overwhelming anxiety. If I was on the edge about that all the time, I would have more ulcers than I already do. Guys, I worry about a lot of things. I know Jesus tells me not to, but I do. Whether it's school, dissertation, being a good husband, being a good dad. Like, what does that look like? He's nine weeks old. I have no idea what I'm doing. I told Kate the other day that, you know, I hold Abram kind of like I... I hang out at the pool. This makes me sound really like a terrible person, but the way I go to the pool is I'll jump in, get wet, and then I'll get back out. Like me and Abe, it's like I hold him, he's cute, I snuggle, and I like give him back. You know, it's like, here you go. If, if I was to, to question and have struggles with all these things, we would be living in overwhelming anxiety. And these Psalms are representative of the things that Israel did not doubt in any way, shape, or form continues, such a happy settlement of life's issues occurs because God is known to be reliable and trustworthy. And for some of you, that's not your story. God is not known to be reliable and or trustworthy. Perhaps that's, that's because you have the wrong frame of mind. You're seeing things with the wrong perspective, but perhaps for some of you, it's just because your life has been absolutely hard in a way that I can't begin to, to understand so for some of you, this might not be where you are yet. The things that Israel believed in that are represented in the Psalms would be like an ordered world. For example, if you're a bad person, what happens to you? Thanks. Thank you, Ryan, truly bad things, absolutely. If you're a good person, good. in the ancient Near East, like that's how they understood things. Remember Job, when Job, says that he was righteous above everyone else. And then this weird scene where the adversary, the Satan shows up, Satan, that's Hebrew, sorry. Satan shows up in the heavenly court and says, no wonder he's faithful, you've given him everything. He's got fields, he's got animals, he's got kids, he's got everything, let me test him. So God says, sure thing, go for it, just don't kill him. Wrap your mind around that for a second and go back to the things that you believe to be true about God and then try to square that away with it. But we'll leave that to the side for a second. Job ends up losing his family, his flocks, his money, his stuff, his house, his his health. He gets these crazy boils and the only way that he finds relief for that is to take pottery, to break it and to like scratch himself. I have this weird thing about my feet. Yeah, this is gonna get strange. There was a scabies outbreak in 1997 in Epworth Christian School. <laughs> and with that, I became the, one of the most paranoid people of all time. It's like when everybody says scabies, you know them. They're the little mites that live underneath of your skin and burrow like in your armpits and behind your legs and in this general region. Don't, okay, like in the, in the, in the warm, moist places. <laughs> yeah, I had to sneak that one in there because everyone loves that word moist, just hear it. But they crawl and they burrow all under your skin and all you can do is just itch, 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 itch. If anybody's had scabies, you know where I'm at and it's okay, we can have a support group. Like, I I don't know if it was just my brain being strange. I used to be borderline obsessive compulsive. You're learning a lot about me today, but that's kind of how it was. I used to jump out of bathrooms and have to switch off light switches at the same time. It's okay, I don't do that anymore. But like I would have these things on my feet and I would just, find no relief. They just itch so bad. So I'd take my heel and I would dig it on the top of my foot and I'd wake up and my sheets would like be attached to my, my feet. Sorry, Megan. I know. And I used to have flannel sheets too. So it was like <laughs> back to Job. <laughs> Job had these boils and the only way he found relief was to take broken pieces of pottery and just scratch his skin off almost. His friends show up and say, it's cute, Job, that you say that you're blameless, but that's not how the world works. What did you do? Come on, you can tell us. What'd you do? It's like that scene in Tommy Boy. What'd you do? Job says, I didn't do anything, but the mindset at that time was, in order to get good, you had to be good, and if you got bad, you were bad, so in their mind, Job was bad. This, it was an ordered world where God worked like that, where you could predict things as they would happen. It wasn't, it wasn't the world in which good people suffered. Beyond that, we also see like this idea of coherence. Things fit together in their understanding of, of what's going on. God is in control, God is the king, God is the one who reigns over all these things, and he is the one that is in control. Twyla Paris, I believe, said it best when she said, God is in control. Thank you, Kate Etling. Like, for for the ancient Israelites, they they believed that. They lived by it. There was this idea of joy and delight and goodness of God that people would also receive from following God. That's just how the world worked in their mind. There was also this reliability of, of God and who he was and how he Did what he said he was going to do. And he answered prayers, and you could talk to him, and he was there. Like it wasn't you drive down the road and you wonder if it's all real. It was that was the stuff that was non negotiable for them. That was the stuff that was true beyond everything else. For example, in Psalm 15, which is where we're going to be hanging out tonight, it says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The underlying implication of this is. God is there, you can go talk to him, you can go access him, you, can, you know where he lives, he lives in the temple. We, after Jesus, have a different conception of that. Remember that bit where Jesus dies and the temple veil rips in two? That's like symbolic of God's presence not being limited to that place anymore. Or in the Old Testament where they would carry around the Ark of the Covenant. You didn't touch it. Because if you did, your face would melt off. We learned that from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. We also learned that from the crazy story about Uzzah who as the the Ark is getting ready to fall off of a cart led by oxen, touched it and immediately dies. That was holy, that was where God was and you didn't mess with it. There was this underlying presupposition that God is actually there, we knew that and we could we could access him. The same sort of thing happens in Psalm 24, who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place. The underlying implication is, this is a Psalm of orientation where they actually believed that that's where he was. They actually believed that you could talk to him and he would answer you and he was there and you could be in his presence. I think for a lot of us that this, this idea is no longer part of our orientation, it's, it's That's one of the things that that we fundamentally doubt. Like the numbers of atheism is going up in this country and all around the world where we are so rational that we've explained a lot of things away or we've come to different conclusions. This is my dear friend, Hermann Gunkel. He looks like a smart man, does he not? Yes. Yes, of course, he's got those almost monocles and a bow tie. Anytime you wear a bow tie automatic street cred in the scholarly world. You could walk into a classroom and if you were in a bow tie, you could teach that class. Even if you don't know what room you're in, you could just start teaching. Have could have a leather briefcase and a bow tie and you're good to go. He began to think about understanding the Psalms in a different way. At this time, in order for us to understand Psalm 15, we kind of have to understand the lay of the land here. He's writing at the end of the 1800s and the early 1900s. And he's beginning to react to what was prominent at the time, namely people trying to figure out the history of the Psalms. Who wrote it? When did they write it? What was it written for? What was it written about? He says, forget that. Instead, let's find the Zitzim Leben, which Sarah means what? Well, we usually say the setting in life, but yeah, the German scholar, that's probably the more accurate way, but the seat in life, the setting in life, that that moment in life. He says, forget about who wrote the psalm, forget about the history surrounding the psalm. Instead, try to figure out why it was used or what it was used for. The way that he went about this was looking at genres. He began to study each psalm and say, this is a particular type of psalm, and this is why Uh, This is important. Here's my example of this. The movie She's All That. Okay. This movie, in my opinion, has defined a generation, namely my own generation, because it was a great movie. It's a movie, and this is like where a young audience is not helping me too much, but like, In She's All That, we have the stud on the left-hand side, Freddie Prince Jr. I modeled my life after him back in the early 90s and tried to become him in many ways, okay? He was the popular guy in school. The girl on the right was the nerdy girl. And this is kind of like that movie where she's wearing glasses and you think to yourself, oh, man, she's a nerd. And then she takes them off. She still looks exactly the same. She's like, oh, my gosh, she's super hot. (laughs) Wow. Who saw that coming? But Freddie <laughs> Prince Jr. was friends with Paul Walker and Paul Walker says, "You think you're so cool? I bet I bet that you can't date a girl and she become the homecoming queen or the prom queen or whatever. And he says, ah, Paul Walker, yes, I can. So there's this bet between these two folks to see if Freddie Prince Jr. is so cool that his coolness emanates not only around himself, but the people that he is with in life where they become as cool or cooler than he is. That's the type of movie that this is. And if you think about the history of cinema, which I know you guys are, you're a very artsy group, I can, I can see that. The same exact plot happens in all of these movies where popular kid becomes, is so popular that they can take the dorky kids and make them popular just by being with them. Let's just span through some of these. Can't Buy Me Love was the exact same plot, although Patrick Dempsey, yes, McSteamy, McDreamy, one of the two, whatever, he was a nerd, and he hired the hot cheerleader girl to be his girlfriend so that he could go to prom and get, get friends. This movie was remade, unfortunately, with Nick Cannon and Christina Milian, okay? Um, we also have 10 Things I Hate About You, Easy A, Mean Girls, Clueless. All of these things are the same. It's the same sort of genre of movies, it's like teeny bopper films about popular people, either in a bet or like having some sort of coolness factor to make other people cool. Same sort of thing happens here in everything that Nicholas Sparks has ever written or any movie based on any book that Nicholas Sparks has ever written. This is the notebook. Any fans? Thank you, Pam. This analogy is certainly not working out too well. (laughs) This movie makes me terribly angry, but in every one of these movies, it's guy and girl, something happens to rip them apart tragically. Here, this is a tale of the socioeconomic structures of the world where rich girl has to be with rich man and poor boy can't be with rich girl, but they're so in love I hate this movie, just, just to be honest with you, but like, it's the same thing, so much so that Hollywood has not only picked up on this, but every movie by Nicholas Sparks has the same exact movie cover. Man face, girl face, okay? Everyone, Safe Haven, Nights in Rodanthe, The Notebook, uh, that movie with Zac Efron, who now I'm trying to model my life after him, his, his hair. Good grief, his hair is so cool. Okay, and then the last song, Before Miley Went Crazy. It, like, all of these things, these are the genres that we can see them and identify them very easily. If this song's on TBS or Saturday afternoon movie, you're like, oh, I know what's gonna happen, even though there's like this moment of crisis between guy and girl, you know that guy and girl are probably gonna get back together, or one of them's gonna die. That, those are the only two, only two options in the Nicholas Sparks genre. <laughs> So now we come back to the Psalms and we come back to Hermann Gunkel where he's reading the Psalms, trying to identify the genre. Think of it as though he plops down, this is a terrible analogy, and and turns on TBS and starts hearing this Psalm. He's gonna start cluing into the things that let him know what type of Psalm it is. So it begins, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? And he begins to think, ah, entrance liturgy. Say it with me now entrance liturgy what in the world does that mean i'm curious throw out some ideas nice as that's happening some people would say that there's this scripted formula so think about next week doug's at the door and in order to come into this place doug says lord who may dwell in your sacred tent who may live on your holy mountain and then you would reply with what follows This was something that was scripted, this was something that um, was characterized within the setting of life of worship. This is something, the genre of this text would let them think that this is how you enter into God's house. This idea hasn't really been accepted too well because you can't prove that at all. So instead, people have said that these psalms might not be entrance liturgies where Doug's at the back and allowing you admittance into this place. It's This text has to do with who is able to be in God's presence wherever you might be, whether that's here, whether that's outside, whether that's in your house, whether that's in your field, whether that's wherever it might be. Who is the type of person that God is looking for to be a worshiper? That's the genre that we're dealing with. And these Psalms, Psalm 15 and 24, are these Psalms of orientation where it's, these are the non-negotiables. Not only is, is God reliable, but there's expectations of the people where they needed to prove themselves to be reliable as well. They had to be a certain type of person in order to warrant the good getting the good. And in this case, just being able to be in the presence of God. If you didn't, allow these things to characterize who you were get out we have a totally different mo here which i think is great but in ancient israel it was it was a bit different when you think about christians today what kind of images come to mind yes i've prompted you with ned flanders from the simpsons a show that i was not allowed to watch as a child and i'm okay with that but like what sort of things like when you think about worshipers What do they look like? What do they do? What characterizes them as people? Talk to me. Always happy. Always happy. Closed eyes while singing. singing. Hands, where are they positioned? Depends. Depends on what kind of church service you're in, perhaps. What else? I know you got stuff. Talk to me about prayer life. You are a chatty bunch. (laughs) Prayer life good? Just nod prayer life. Good, bad. No, good, good. Talk to me about Bible reading, Bible reading, important thing, church attendance, that important thing. What else is important? Cause right now we've just kind of hit like the stereotypes of they sing songs, they read, they pray, but what do they do outside? So you go into a service and you got your hands up. But then what characterizes who you are as you leave this place? Think about that. Let that be something that kind of sits in your brain and we'll come back to it. In the Psalm, it says, this is what a true worshiper is. The one who walks in integrity, who does righteousness, who speaks the truth in his heart. This is the type of person that I want to, to follow me, to worship me. Here you can see this, there's a, a play on where you walk, what you do, and what you say. You're walking in integrity. You're doing, literally, you do righteousness. We think kind of abstractly about righteousness, but in in the ancient Israelite world, it was something that you actually did. It's not just who you are. it's, it's, It's an act that you went about doing. You speak truth. Those are the sorts of things that characterize who you are. Your talk is mirrored by your actions. There's no breakdown between the things that you say and the things that you do. They're not in conflict whatsoever. He continues in verse three, which kind of goes on to add more meat to the bones here, it says he has not gone about. This Hebrew verb is from regal, which is actually um, from the noun regal, which means foot. It's a walking word. It's, it's heightening this walking, doing, speaking again. Sometimes that's buried in the English, but he has not gone about talking. He has not been one who is walking His words are not walking, literally. He has not done evil to his friends or taken up abuse or taunts against his neighbor. So here you see the same kind of idea of walking, doing, speaking, and here are the negatives. So you're walking in integrity, you're doing righteousness, you're speaking in truth, you're not letting your words walk around, you're not doing evil to your friends, you're not taking up abuse or taunts against your neighbor, that's not who you are. Which begs the question, not of them back then, but of us now, how is it that you treat the community? This text was all about, not just the people outside of the walls, because they didn't really have an outside of the walls mentality. It was like, this was your group, this was life, this was your support, and there's no way on this earth you should be talking trash about one another. There's no way on this earth that you should be having this disconnect between your actions and the things that you say. You should be one who's characterized by integrity, righteousness, and truth. How how true are those things of us as a people? It's so easy to throw people under the bus. It's so easy to say, I could do that better and here's nine ways why I could. It's so easy to do evil to your friends, companions, your people, when they give you that door. Sometimes it's just like the, the colloquialism of our time where if your friend opens the door, you ram it through and just bust them big time for who they are. And a lot of times, especially with students, they'll say things like, oh, he knows I'm joking. Meanwhile, that person is like dying on the inside and everything that you're saying to them becomes their identity as a person. We have this idea that worship is, and I know I kind of set this up in, in a terrible way, but we do have this idea that worship is this thing that happens here and it has no, no relationship to, to our lives. We're okay to be a jokester over here as long as that's separate from our worship in here. And there's certain texts in the Old Testament where God basically says, that's cute, but you can leave now. If your life doesn't match up with your worship, I'm done with you. Like the stakes are high here and that's why he's given these kinds of of ideas. This is kind of backed up as well by the ideas that people have about us as Christians this is a book called Unchristian, written by David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons. It's based on Barner research, where people would make calls and just ask people. Specifically, they were wondering what non Christians, how they could identify the Christian community. What six adjectives were the most prevalent ways to describe us? Take this personally for a second. We're hypocritical. We're evangelical, and by that I mean all we care about is conversion. So we'll go to the supermarket, slap a tract on somebody's car, and then walk away. We just wanna see people saved, and then we just aren't a part of their lives. We're anti-homosexual, we're overprotective, meaning we have these bubbles and we don't allow ourselves to go beyond them. Meanwhile, Jesus hung out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors, or modern day drug dealers of our time, and we stay in our bubbles. we're overly political, and I think you could read in there. In most cases, that would be overly political. I, yeah, I don't want to go there. And, and we're judgmental as people. Okay, with this, with this text in particular, people that are walking with integrity, that are doing righteousness and speaking truth, like the two that you could hang out with would be uh, hypocritical and judgmental. I mean, all of these are, are awful perceptions of who we are as, as people, and for a lot of you, this isn't who you are, but think about it like our community has, has made this bed and we lie in it. And the onus is on us to take these ideas and then completely destroy them, dismantle them by not being hypocritical. That doesn't mean that we're not sinners. It means that we're authentic. It means that you can stand up here and say like, I mean, well, we won't make it like a I was gonna say, we won't make it this big confession moment, but goodness, the Bible talks about confession. Like there's these moments where you're real and you can say, I struggle with this. I'm doubting that. This thing seems to be defining who I am and I can't beat it. It's hard to be a hypocrite when you're, when you're that honest, when you're that open. This, also, this idea of being judgmental is we just write people off without knowing their story, without knowing who they are. You walk into the mall and you see a person wearing skinny jeans with tattoos and you make, a, you make a narrative about them in your mind. Or you see a person wearing this style or that style and you've created in your, in your mind who they are as a person. You don't know them at all. But sometimes that kind of stuff is, is where we are and God says that's not what a true worshiper is. It goes on, he says, in his eyes a vile person is despised but he honors those who fear the Lord. He's able, this person, is able to call people on their junk. You see a brother or a sister in a sin, you call them on it. You don't let it go because it's not your place to judge. In this text, the true worshiper is one that's able to step into the narrative lovingly, but firmly and say, not here, man, let's get this back on the right track. He honors those who fear the Lord. He has sworn to bring calamity. You might want to translate that. He has sworn to do things even when it hurts. And sometimes the conversations that you have to have with people will hurt you because you're afraid that you will hurt them. Like parents, you're with me. It might be you don't want to discipline because you don't want to upset the nice balance at home, either with wife or with kids or whatever. But in this person's mind, they swear to bring calamity and they don't change. They don't deviate. They see the problem. They address the problem. They're firm. They're loving. They're in it. Which brings us back to this question of how do you treat the community? How you treat the community has everything to do with this, with worship, with God saying, who's able to come and hang out with me? It's that person that's legit, that's completely honest with who they are and what they're doing. Goes on, he has not lent his money at interest, he has not accepted a bribe against the innocent, the one who does these things, he will never be shaken. We learn a lot from this text. Namely, we learn that you can't separate your actions and your words. You can't separate your outside life and your inside life. You can't separate who you are in church with who you are at work or who you are at home. All of that is part of this big matrix that we call following Jesus. And for a lot of us, that doesn't ring true because we're this way in this place with these people, we're that way in that place with those people, and we're this way and we're here in this room. And we just kind of do that thing. In this text, this text of orientation where we learn about God and we learn about what he expects from us, it's like those are the non-negotiables where these are the types of people that you need to be. So you could leave it with this question, what about you? In this moment, like what characterizes you as a person? How does this text speak to you? Are you living up to the claims of it even, even here and now? The beauty of this, and hear me say this, I know we're, we're to, the, to the point. I think we're five minutes past the point, but stay with me for th- two minutes. The beauty of this for us, it's not that legalistic thing where we just check stuff off. It's not that, that moment where we show up to the door and Doug says, who's able to enter? And we say, the one who is worthy and who walks in integrity and the one who does righteousness and speaks this and does that like it's not that it's when we approach this place whether it's here or at home or wherever and God says who's worthy to be with me it's the one that accepts his son the one who's done that work the one who's completely forgiven us the one that did everything that we can't do Don't misunderstand me though, that doesn't mean that we're off scot-free. There's too many people, even in this room right now, you're fooling yourselves. Because your life does not go with the things that you say. It's time that we start to bring those things together through the Holy Spirit working in us where we actually begin to become more in the image of Jesus each and every day. For some of us, that's small breakthroughs of you talk to your neighbor and you get to know who they are. For some of us, it's bigger than that where you pick up the phone and you forgive your dad. For some of us, it's you fight to reconcile the relationship. For others, it's you begin to believe and trust. I don't know whatever that is for you. This idea in this Psalm in particular, we begin to question who we are And as we're in the presence of God, we're face to face with this idea of, am I worthy to be here? Does Jesus speak up for me in integrity and righteousness and truth? Or have I just missed it altogether? I hope this evening that not only is Jesus real in your life, but the the claims that you make with your mouth are being backed up by your actions and your words and your deeds as well. And I pray that for myself uh, along with you.